0: you I'm William Chamberlain and welcome to a new edition of Legends of Film. Today we have director Louis Teague. Mr. Teague has directed such films as The Lady in Red, Alligator, Cujo, and Cat's Eye. Cat's Eye will be showing Saturday, November 17th at 2 p.m. at the downtown Nashville Public Library. You directed both Cat's Eye and Cujo, both based on the works of Stephen King. What's your attraction to Mr. King's writing?
1: There's a realism to his writing. There's several things about Stephen King's writing that I'm fond of. There's a realism to his characters and the situations they're in. And his stories uh, are told in a very organic kind of way. In other words, he claims to start off by putting his main character in a predicament, and then spending the rest of the story trying to work his way out of that commitment. In other words, he never knows where the story ultimately is headed, which I think is is a much more organic way of storytelling. And the other thing I like about his books is that in the supernatural elements that he usually introduces, there's quite often a metaphorical element And that's what I've liked about horror films, science fiction films, monster films from childhood is that they were usually or quite often I could see that the monster was a metaphor
0: for something else. I listened to your audio commentaries and you stated you taught at UCLA and you stated you taught your students to approach uh, their films like they were making a documentary. I was just curious. When you direct like a horror film like Stephen King's Cujo or Cat's Eye or Alligator, for that matter, do you approach those like a documentary filmmaker?
1: Well, that is in my background, so that does inform my filmmaking style to some degree. But in that commentary, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I do remember what happened at UCLA and teaching them how to tell their story from a documentary point of view was only one of four exercises that I gave them. Another one of the exercises which I gave them was to study films that they like to extract certain techniques and then utilize those techniques when you're trying to create a specific effect in your film. And for example, how to make a scary scene I discovered quite often is based on uh, applying a certain set of principles that were done by many other directors
0: before me in the audio commentary of cat's eye you mentioned that Stephen King was on the set to learn how to direct I'm curious did you give mr. King any advice on how to direct and if you did what was it
1: I'd have to give that some thought I don't remember specifically giving him any advice on directing we mostly talked about storytelling The only thing, the only thing I ever, uh, yeah, I mean, of course I talked about what I was doing, and I talked about the RHB factor, which I always try to include in films, and RHB stands for recognizable human behavior, and it's very important when you're doing a monster film, or a science fiction film, or a fantasy film, that you introduce one element that breaks the laws of physics, and then as we know it, and then everything else has to respond as if that law had been changed. And so uh, I did talk with Stephen about that a lot. And that's one of the things I like about his writing is is that
0: there's an RHB factor to the characters that he writes about. On Cat's Eye, you worked with several legends of the movie business. Um, First, Jack Cardiff, the director of photography, who photographed the red shoes and black narcissus, and he also invented technicolor. Was there a level of intimidation working with Mr. Cardiff?
1: Well, I hope I didn't intimidate him too much. (laughs) 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 No, no, not, not, not at all. He was a very proper gentleman. He came in and did his job very effectively. The British style of cinematography is very, that was the first time I'd worked with a British cinematographer. And their, their MOS, their style of operation is a little different from what I was used to. Prior to that, I've worked mostly with, prior and since, I've worked with mostly European cinematographers. Especially, I like working with French, German, Dutch cinematographers. Because in those countries, the director of photography is also the operator. And he, so you're dealing with one person when you're planning a shot, talking about what's going on in front of the camera, of course, and how you want to capture that, and, what kind of, and not just how it's going to be lit, but how the camera is going to move and be composed. In England, those operations are separated, and Jack... Cardiff was what one calls a lighting cameraman, which means after I staged the scene and told him where I'd like the camera, he would proceed to start lighting it while the operator would work out the camera moves and composition with me. And I found that an odd division of labor and didn't particularly like it a lot. But I do admit that Jack Cardiff's cinematography in the sense of his lighting is extraordinary, unparalleled. But you know, we had no. I had no conflict with him because he directed a lot of wonderful films. We just, uh, I ju- he just did his job as a cinematographer, and I really appreciated that.
0: Also, um, Carlo Rambaldi, who created ET, also created the troll in Cat's Eye. Did you collaborate with Mr. Rambaldi in the creation of the creature?
1: Only in terms of design. It was a, there was a lot of back and forth. The design was essentially his. Well, you know, we talked about the parameters that were required, what size it was supposed to be, and what functions it could perform. We had an animatronic troll, and we also then made a a larger costume that I could put on a small person and, in a, an oversized set. So we used a variety of techniques to get the, everything from green screen to animatronics to oversized sets to get that effect. But you know Carlo Umbald, I think he just died a couple of days ago. Did you hear that?
0: Yes, sir. I did.
1: Yes, that's sad. He was a he was like most of the Italians that I worked with. He was a great gentleman. He was a, the the Italians in the film industry. All the ones that I've met have they're they're really gracious and elegant people.
0: In your audio commentaries, you mentioned your admiration for Jean Luc Godard and the New Wave movement, also documentary filmmaking and i was on looking at the lewis teague web series on youtube is this what you're trying to accomplish with the new digital filmmaking and could you talk a little bit about that
1: i think i said before that my two main influences were the french new wave and uh cinema verite and i met in new york at that time i met al mazels and his brother david and through them uh, penny baker and lee Cock. And those were the guys that were taking advantage of the new technology, which at that time consisted of a small Nagra recorder that had a crystal-governed motor so that you could shoot with a camera that also had a crystal in it. They would be shooting at exactly the same speed and remain in sync. So for the first time, documentary filmmakers could go out and run around and, and shoot things on the fly. And I found that exciting. And at the same time, I saw the new wave films that were coming out, mainly Breathless. And uh, Breathless was a very exciting film stylistically for a young guy in film school. The camera was always moving, and there were a lot of jump cuts, and it broke all the rules that they were teaching us at film school about match cuts and continuity and I found it refreshing and exciting. And and I sort of melded those two techniques in my student film. It's about this carpenter that got me my first job at Universal. And, yes, you're absolutely right that now with the digital technology, I can go out and shoot things on the fly. I can steal stuff. I can take one actor or two actors, put them in the midst of a whole bunch of other people who aren't aware of the camera and have them interact. And it's been a lot of fun. That particular web series is more of an educational endeavor for me. Uh, It was never intended to be commercial. I just wanted to learn as much as I could about digital technology and the cameras and equipment that's out there. Everything from the cameras to the editing. I wanted to master Final Cut 7 and 10, and I wanted to learn how to do digital effects on After Effects and other effects programs. I want to have as much. I'm just hungry for as much information as I can get about how one makes a digital film, and then the various ways of distributing it as an alternative to the traditional distribution uh, through theaters. But to uh, how wide an audience can you attract on the internet? And I learned a lot in the process of making that web series
0: too, I would do it
1: differently the next time.
0: I want to talk about working at New World Pictures and during that time you worked with or they were around at the time, Paul Bartel, Jonathan Demme, Joe Dante, Alan Arkish, James Horner, John Sales, Monty Hellman, James Cameron, I don't want to romanticize it but it sounds like Paris in the 1920s to me. What are your recollections of working at New World during that time?
1: That's a great analogy uh, that because there were so many talented people grouped together and working on the same projects. I worked on projects with every one of those people you just mentioned with the exception of James Cameron. I met him a lot in passing, but we never worked together. I mean, all the others I worked with and got to know well, and we socialized and talked about movies, exchanged ideas. So it was, it was a very fertile environment that... Energized all of us and motivated all of us. Roger was very good at uh, recognizing talent, and he had a, uh, he would hire people above their credit level. In other words, he'd find somebody he thought was skilled and to offer them a job that they hadn't done before, so they could move up the ladder. And therefore, people work for nothing in order to get the credit. So it was a win-win situation for everybody. It was, it was really exciting. I mean, Jamie Horner did the music for my first movie, and that may have been his first feature score, too. All of those people, you know, and Ron Howard. I, I edited uh, one of Ron Howard's films. Uh, Monty Hellman was the guy who helped me get into Roger Corman's company in the first place. You know, I, I co-edited a movie he did called Cockfighter uh, for Roger. And we, and we still communicate. I'm still communicate with Alan Arkish and Joe Dante. I spent a lot of time with those two guys. They were cutting trailers when I'd be cutting Jonathan Demi's film in the next room, that kind of stuff.
0: You just mentioned Monty Hellman's Cockfighter and you said you were the film editor on it and the lead character played by Warren Oates only speaks in flashback and at the very end of the movie. Um, what challenges did you face editing this unusual story?
1: Well, Monty and I divided up the film. He asked me to cut all the action cockfighting sequences, and he cut all the dialogue sequences. So I did. I, I wasn't affected by Warren Oates' muteness, But anyway, it was, a pro, it, was a, it was an ill-conceived movie, and Roger acknowledged that later, too. Well, I remember once Roger said to me, Lewis, I'll never lose money in a movie if I have the right title and a low enough budget. And Cockfighter opened in the South where he thought at drive-ins in the South back in the 70s, whenever that was, Roger thought it was going to do a, do a lot of business because he said pop, cockfighting is very popular in the South. Well, we it opened on a Friday and Monday morning I was cleaning up the editing room and I got a call from Roger saying, Lewis, I was wrong. <laughs> I guess I had the wrong title. They're not interested in cockfighting. The picture bombed over the weekend. So we're going to cut a new trailer and change the title and cut a new trailer. And have you heard this story? No, I have So he said, I want you to get all the footage of sex and violence that you can and give it to Joe Dante in the next room who was cutting trailers. We're changing the title. I forget what the new title was. And I said, Roger, I don't think it's uh, right to put footage and the trailer that's not in the movie. And Roger said, you're right, put it in the movie. <laughs> so in the in the version, it finally got released. If you've ever seen it, there's a scene where Warren Oates falls asleep and dreams about police cars careening around corners and girls with big boobs,
0: that kind of stuff.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: You are also a second unit director on several films. For those not in the know, could you just describe briefly what a second unit director is?
1: second unit director that's uh, hired to shoot things that the first unit director, the main director, doesn't have the time, desire, or skill to shoot. Very often, usually, a second unit director is somebody that will go off with their own crew and stuntmen and props and shoot action sequences while the first unit director can focus on shooting scenes with the principal players the actors etc
0: you were the second unit director on the big red one directed by sam fuller what was mr fuller's instruction to you on that film
1: mr fuller did not talk to me until that movie was almost complete and the reason for that is he did not want a second unit director He regarded himself as a pure auteur and did not want anyone else directing footage that would go into his movie. Now, I understand that. I was hired by the producer, Gene Corman, because after a week or two of shooting, apparently Sam was shooting a lot of long master shots that weren't working in the middle, in action sequences, and there was no way to edit them. So Jean hired me to be the second unit director. And in this predicts, so this was not a healthy situation from the outset. And I didn't realize it when I was hired, I thought I was being hired with Sam's full knowledge and approval. They'd already started shooting in Israel and Jean put me on a plane and I arrived in Israel and there was no one to meet me at the hotel. I mean, at the airport, I took a taxi to the hotel and I went looking for a Sam to say hello, and I introduced myself as his second unit director, and and his jaw dropped. I, he looked at me for a long, long beat. Seemed like uh, a long time to me. It was probably just a couple seconds. And then he said, I don't need a second unit director. I don't want a second unit director. Never have, never will. And turned around and walked away. So from that point on, I... Was working under Gene Corman's instructions and his instructions to me were be on the set when Sam shoots a scene watch him shoot the action sequences look at the dailies and then figure out what cutaways might be needed if we need to re- edit some of these scenes and so for example he had a shot he had a scene where the GIs were landing on the beach in, in out North Africa and fighting Germans and Grenades were gone off, and guys were getting shot, and he never once, Sam never shot anything in the other direction of the hilltops that the Germans were shooting from, or individual Germans firing weapons, so when the first unit crew would leave a set, I would come in with another crew, but I'd have all the same extras, and I could get cutaways, now these weren't cutaways that were going to be forced on Sam to use. These were cutaways that Gene Corman wanted to have in the library in case Sam discovered that he needed them when he was editing. So ultimately, Sam warmed to me, and he. I told him how important an influence he was to me when I was a kid. When I was about 12 or 13, I saw steel helmets and fixed bayonets and... I love those films they were they were produced by a guy in l a named Robert Lippert. Have you ever heard of him? No, sir. You might look him up he's historically he's a very interesting guy and he has had a big influence in the start of the independent film movement that really began with Easy Rider and a lot of the pictures that came out of b b s in the seventies. But Robert Lippert had, he owned a couple of chains of theaters, and he produced really low-budget films in the Philippines to put in those theaters. Like Monty Hellman did some of his first films for Robert Lippert. Jack Nicholson did some of his very first films for Robert Lippert. And Robert Lippert also, going way back, was producing Sam Fuller's movies, or some of them. He had an influence on me, too, because there's, are you familiar with the name Fred Roos? Yes, uh, Godfather? Yeah, he's a producer. He produced Godfather. He produced a ton of great films. Prior to producing, he, he became Coppola's producer because he was Coppola's casting director. Fred Roos had worked for Robert Lippert, too, on films in the Philippines. And Fred Roos called me one day back around 1965 uh, when I was leaving Universal. and I didn't know what I was going to do next told me about a little movie theater that Robert Lippert owned on Sunset Boulevard, Sunset Strip in Los Angeles. It was a little theater that had been built to show what they called nudie cuties back in that day. It was just not porn, but just kind of softcore stuff. Mm -hmm. But, But by the time the theater was finished, Sunset Strip became mecca for rock and rollers and hippies from all over the country. You know, with the, it was, this little theater was right across the street from the Whiskey-A-Go-Go and the Gazzaris and a lot of other rock and roll venues. And so R- Lippert didn't want to do it at the theater. He felt this was a bad location for Nudie Cutie. So Fred Roos introduced me to Lippert, and I wanted to set up a a little tech in L.A. to show retrospectives and some of my favorite films and a lot of experimental underground films. And so I made a proposal to Lippert and he let me program films into that theater for a couple years and I had a lot of fun doing that.
0: Getting back to second unit, you also filmed second units on Death Race 2000 and I was listening to audio commentary and you were talking about the day that Stuntman didn't show up and you wound up doing the stunt playing the Matador to a car.
1: (laughs) And I'm yeah. curious,
0: you, I'm just curious, how dangerous was that for you just to jump in, oh, I'll do it, and how did it come about?
1: The stuntman wasn't there that day. I think it, it was the result that the first unit had done some rescheduling, and they had priorities, so they got the stunt guy, and I had the car, and somebody to drive it, so I, I just jumped in. I thought it would be fun. No, it wasn't terribly risky, but... Then when I was young, I did a lot of crazy, risky things. But I don't remember it being any more risky than climbing the big walls in Yosemite, for example.
0: You finally got your chance to direct at New World Pictures, on The Lady in Red, and I've read where Roger Corman would take a director he hired, and before filming, he would give him advice. Did Mr. Corman do this for you? And if so, what did he talk about? (laughs) Well, the one I remember...
1: The clearest, because it was the silliest, he said, Lewis, when I was directing for AIP, I found that I could save lots of time by shooting all the close-ups for the entire movie at one time. He said, that way I could just set up one lighting setup, and I would stage all the scenes so that all I had to bring in for the close-up was a picture to hang behind the actor's head to tell us where we were. And I ignored that, of course. <laughs> uh, let's see, what other things did he, he would give advice, like, I, I'm sure he's such a smart guy, and I'm sure he's got uh, Asperger's syndrome. But he, another time he said, Lewis, one thing I discovered is not to thank the crew after we successfully print a difficult shot. He said, because if everybody stops to listen to your congratulations and applaud you may have lost 10 or 15 seconds now if you're shooting 60 setups a day seven days a week but and he did the math you're gonna be losing so many hours over the course of your shoot and in those four or five hours you could have gotten another 15 20 shots that you will value in the editing room that kind of stuff <laughs>
0: On The Lady in Red and Alligator, both were written by John Sayles. How closely did you work with Mr. Sayles on the scripts? The way way I worked with John, John and I would sit down and have lengthy discussion,
1: or I shouldn't say lengthy because they weren't lengthy chronologically, but we would have comprehensive discussions about a story. For example, with Alligator, I had been given another script, I like the basic idea. I, I, I Really, the the urban myth of alligators being in the sewers was something I had grown up with in New York, and so when I got the original script, I was tickled by the, the basic idea. There's a giant alligator in the sewer, and it breaks out and marauds through the city, but the script was no good. So I accepted jo- the job on condition that John Sayles would come in and do a rewrite, and with John, we, we sat down, and I told him what I, what I liked about it, uh, and so which would give it a tone. It, was, it would have to be not tongue-in-cheek to the extent that it becomes campy, but there has to be a lightheartedness to it and humor. And Also, I talked to him about what has always appealed to me in horror films or monster films, which is that the monster can be a metaphor so therefore they the monster what we have to do is the giant alligator has to be one of the demons that the main character has to exorcise in order to clean up his psyche and so we, we had that's that's about as much as we talked about and then John went off for two weeks he had to fly to Japan for something and he wrote the script on the plane he's a very fast writer and he came back and all we really had to do after uh, he returned and read the script was not make any major structural changes but just cut it down to a, a doable length
0: you also directed jewel of the nile the sequel to romancing the stone and and i might be wrong on this but up to that time you had worked on what i would call you know low budget or moderately budgeted films and Jewel of the Nile was a big Hollywood production sequel, and I mean, was there a culture shock going from your usual, the smaller budget films that you worked on to working on Jewel of the Nile?
1: There, there were a lot of big challenges because of the incremental increase in size, budget, star power, etc. that I'll be working with. In some cases, it was beneficial and exciting and, and a wonderful experience, uh, one of the reasons I accepted the job was because Michael Douglas was going to be producing and starring in it. And I had observed over the course of his career that all of his pictures that he was involved with uh, had a certain level of, of wit and intelligence and humor and ta- and skill to them that I, I realized, okay, Michael, is he's a quality control guy. That almost guarantees that we're going to have a certain level of quality. Also, we're coming on the heels of a successful Film, uh, so that's going to help the marketing. So working with Michael, wh- who was a big star, was a tremendous advantage because he's capable of wearing two hats. And when he's producing, he's producing. And when he's acting, he's taking direction. There were some negative aspects, but they were challenging. One is that the size of the crew grew so much uh, that we lost count there would appear to be over 500 people working on the film at one time when we were shooting in Morocco. And the problem with that is that sometimes uh, I couldn't move. We would have, we'd finish one scene that we'd shot in the morning at lunchtime and I'd want to move 10 miles down the road to shoot that scene that was scheduled for the afternoon. But working with a gigantic production like that was just too cumbersome The production manager would say, if we eat lunch here and then start moving, by the time we get there, you'll only have a half hour to shoot the scene before the sun goes down. So can you figure out some way of shooting the same scene here in this location, which usually results in huge compromises? I did not like working with uh, that size of a production. Just in terms of the numbers of people and equipment involved, because one of the directors, biggest challenges on any film is overcoming inertia getting everybody excited and moving in the same direction and with a huge production like that it becomes a big challenge
0: final question Um, you worked with producer Dino De Laurentiis in the commentary of uh, Cat's Eye he said he he taught you how to make pasta and I was just curious (laughs) if anything about filmmaking from Mr. De Laurentiis
1: Oh, about filmmaking. Oh, yes. The first thing that comes to mind is that Dino operated from the gut more than from the intellect. He was an extremely smart man, but he would make all his decisions instantly. I remember when I would have a meeting with him in his office, he had a gigantic office with with a gigantic desk in it. And when I would have a meeting with him, there'd be nothing on his desk except the material related to what our discussion was going to be about. If we were going to talk about a book, there was a book there. I'm talking aside from the lamp and the, a and the phone. It, he'd have a the book there, or if we're going to talk about a script, he would have the script there. And if uh, a problem came up, for, for example, I went into his office one morning. He had asked me to read a book. And I went in to tell him, yeah, I enjoyed the book, Dino. And he said, you want to make a movie if there's a book? And I thought, yeah. And he said, well, who do you want for the writer? And I said, well, I'd have to do a little research on that. thinking. Of... And we said, no, no, Dino said, if you mustn't make a decision right now, who you pick? And I thought it was just a purely hypothetical game. And I said, well, if I had to make a decision right now. I go with my friend. Don, who rewrote Cujo for me, and Dino turned to his consigliere there, Fred, and said, Fred, uh, call this guy, uh, Don, who's his agent? Within a half an hour, he he had a deal made with the guy and tickets for the guy to fly to New York that evening. So Dino taught me that you make instantaneous decisions. You go with the first decision. Over 90% of the time, it's the right one. And if it's the wrong one, then you make another decision later down the line. But, and that's very important in directing. I've had a chance to observe a lot of other directors' work. And one of the biggest problems a director can ever have on a set is being indecisive. And also when, oh yeah, Dino would participate in some of the casting sessions for the main roles in a movie. If there was an actor I wanted to use, Dino had to meet the guy. And the meetings were awfully strange. I'd be in the office with Dino. The assistant would bring the actor into the office. There'd be the, the it'd be a brief introduction. And Dino would say to the actor, take a seat. And the actor would sit down. And, and some of these were big-name actors. And Dino would just start staring at the guy. <laughs> and, and just staring, not saying anything. Matter of fact, that reminds me. That's what happened when I when I met him, just staring at the actor, and then after a few minutes, uh, Dina would say, "We may, you, we give you a call. I call you your agent. Thank you very much for coming in." And the actor would leave, and Dina would say, he, "He's no simpatico. He's no simpatico. He, he would make a decision about whether he liked the person, not just as a person, but as also as the character in the film." It was, it was. It was just. <laughs> but the more I've studied about effective leaders in history that I uh, adopt as role models, sometimes the more I discover that that's how they operate. They don't. They're not. They don't pick the people for their team by an intellectual number crunching and an intellectual number crunching way. They will do it from their gut instincts. Their intuitive perception of the person. He also taught me how to be a diplomat. There are a couple stories I don't have the time to go into right now, but he was was a wonderful guy. He was a great producer.
0: I would like to thank Lewis Teague for granting an interview with us. So remember, come to the Nashville Public Library Saturday, November 17th at 2 p.m. to see Cat's Eye. The library is located at 615 Church Street. It's free, and the theme music today is Night on Bald Mountain.